following message is presented by Community Gospel Church in Bremen, Indiana. It is our great privilege to share this ministry with you. We in no way intend for this to be a replacement for the local church. It is our prayer that this would serve as a resource to help make Jesus Christ known in our congregation and other congregations gathering across the world. For more information about Community Gospel Church, visit www.communitygospelchurch.com. First of all, I want to say to you that I have had the privilege in the last year to teach school. Uh, many years, a number of years ago, I went, got a teaching certificate through Western Illinois University, and then I've been teaching some in the last year. And I teach speech. And high school kids, every high school student better take speech. Did you get it? I love teaching speech, and I tell these kids it's so important for their future as they present themselves for a job, they present themselves in life, as they present themselves to a future mates that might take them in or not. But one of my students came to me this week and asked a question that I will ask you. How many years has it been since the Cubs won the World Series. Zero. <laughs> she got me too. I said 108. <laughs> she got By the way, the one of the reasons I love to teach high school kids is they're starting, some of them, to think. <laughs> and they're starting to think about what they believe what they're going to go to in life, what their standards and convictions are. I had a boy come to me in our school the other day and he said, it's a Christian school. And he said, I'm not sure I believe all this stuff. I said, fantastic, let's talk about it. He's starting to think. And I love that about that age. Um, and I'm sure all the students here are thinkers, correct? I also want to tell you that I was here on Father's Day and didn't quite know what to say, but that morning I got up and Jordan said to me, what do you want for breakfast? And he made me the best cheese omelet. He makes great cheese omelets that I've had in a long time. It was wonderful. So what I'm going to share with you is that anytime you want a good cheese omelet, call him. <laughs> He'll be over. But another thing I learned when I was here a couple weeks ago, I was here and not kind of planned. I was fishing up in Berrien Springs with my brother that I do every year for salmon and they weren't there. So I came down here. My brother is from Cleveland, Ohio. <laughs> we watched a baseball game together. And the Cubs lost Friday night and Saturday night and I said to him, two things I said to him, number one, I said, the Cubs are not going to win the World Series, and Hillary's going to win the election. <laughs> and he said to me about it, this last week, he called me and said, little brother, you lied. <laughs> <laughs> Which I did. <laughs> but one thing I noticed when I was here, Jordan did something, and I want to help you who work with teenagers. I love working with teenagers. And one thing that's important is repetition. 
And Jordan looked down at me twice while he was preaching. He says, that's one you told us. And I probably had repeated it a hundred times and he got it. And then a little while later in his sermon, he said, that's two. And never get discouraged when you're working with people, especially teenagers. You think they're not listening. When I became a youth pastor, this was in 1970, folks, and I worked with a junior high boy who gave me fits, and I had to spend every time teaching to get him to be quiet. And four years later, he quoted me things I had said four years earlier that I had never repeated in between. They are listening. So I pray this morning you also listen. And I'm going to share a message with you that was challenged me in this subject a number of years ago by a, name, a guy by the name of Bill McRae. Bill McRae influenced my life very much. He, went, he was at Dallas Seminary when I was there working on his doctorate. He later became the president of London, Ontario Bible College. Brilliant man, humble man. Had a little bit of background that my mother had had called the Plymouth Brethren, and I just really, really respected him. And he challenged me in a message today, and I'm, gonna, I'm going to need your help, folks. You're going to have to stay with me. There's a lot here. And I'm going to preach on something that is not normally taught anymore in our churches, and I think it needs to be more and more. Now, you notice in your bulletin, uh, you don't call it those things anymore, my day bulletin, it says notes. And the reason for that, Jordan, said that'll change in the middle of the week, so don't put any outline in. And Wednesday I called Jordan and said, I've changed. He said, I knew you would. We put notes in. So please, please take notes and follow with me in this message. But before we do, I say this over and over. I love to preach the Word of God because it's the Word of God, not mine. And I'm scared to preach the Word of God because it's the Word of God, not mine. So join with me in this study before we pray together. Before we study the Word, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, this is your Word and it's not mine, and may I make it clear and may I make it applicable to our lives. Thank you for this dear congregation and their love for each other and their love for you and I thank you and your their love for all who are involved and their love for our son and his wife and our two granddaughters I thank you most of all for you and who you are and may we see you today like never before it's in Christ's name we pray amen A.W. Tozer, in a book that you were advocating to read a couple months ago called The Knowledge of the Holy, says this right at the beginning of the book. What comes into your mind when you first think about God is the most important thing about you. There is nothing more basic to what you think than your view of who God is. Was Jesus... God in the flesh, or merely a man? Must a person be born again, or just be a follower of Christ? 
Are we saved forever? Or could we lose it in the end? Is there really a heaven to win and a hell to shun? Is the Bible really the word of God or just another religious book? Every question like that reflects yours and my view of God. What you believe about God determines your concept about him and answers these kind of questions. What you believe about God will answer those kind of questions and hundreds more. What you believe about God is the most important thing about you. It is basic to your Christian faith. It is basic to your Christian living. How do you live your life? It's a reflection of what you believe about God. Show me a person who worries, and I will show you a person who says God is not in control. He's a God who is weak. He doesn't follow my life. He doesn't know what's happening. He's not aware of things. Show me a person who works and works and works, and I will show you a person that does not pray, has little time for God because he's unapproachable and unavailable. Show me a teenager who starts to make plans about life and ignores God's word and God's plans, and I'll show you a teenager that says God is a fool and I know more than he does. Show me a person who plays loose and fast with sin, and I'll show you a person that does not believe we have a holy God. Show me a person who has low self-esteem and has a poor self-image, and I will show you a person that says we have a God that makes junk worthless. It's basic to your Christian faith. It's basic to your Christian life. Every area of doctrine and every area of my living depends on my view of God or my distorted view of God. Today I want us to see God. You heard about the little kindergarten boy? Teacher gave him an assignment. To draw whatever's on your mind. It's Monday morning now. So he's drawing away, and the teacher comes around the room and checks all these pictures. And he looks the teacher looks down at the boy and says, what are you drawing? He says, I'm drawing a picture of God. I heard about him yesterday in church. And the teacher said, well, nobody knows what God looks like. And the little boy said, they will when I get done. And I pray that we get a picture of God in just one of many attributes of God. This is only one that I want to look at today. And it's not the whole perspective of who God is, but is one characteristic of God. G.I. Packer in his book, Knowing God, says there are four characteristics of men and women who really know God. Listen to these. They have great boldness for God. They have great contentment in God they have great energy for God and they have great thoughts about God that's the kind of person I want to be if that's you 
join me this morning on the pursuit of the weak to find this God. Charles Haddon Spurgeon said, the greatest pursuit in heaven is the process of understanding the concept of the character of God. And so that's quite an introduction today, folks, but I wanted to bring you into this. I want us to look at the God of the Bible in one characteristic, and I believe when we get done, he may be different from the God you've had in your mind. He may be radically different. When you think about God, what comes into your mind? It's the most important thing about you. So I want you to turn with me to the book of Daniel, chapter 4. And we want to see somebody that learned what God was like. Now in Daniel chapter 1, while you're turning, and Daniel's in the Old Testament, the Old Testament's broken down into three sections, historical books, poetical books, prophetical books. The big prophets called are Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and then there's Daniel, and then you go into the minor prophets. And we're in Daniel near the end of the Old Testament. The ruling power of the day was a nation called Babylon. They had conquered the Assyrians. The nation of Israel had divided into two sections. They had civil war, you know, kind of like what's going on in the United States of America today. But anyway, they had civil war. And the northern tribes were called Israel. In 722 B.C., they were carried into captivity by us. Syria intermarried, became the Samaritans. Then, in 606 B.C., the Babylonians, who had now already conquered the Assyrians, took control under a king by the name of Nebuchadnezzar. And he was the most powerful man in the whole world at this time. So I want to read a section to you, and this is going to be a little long, and I need your help, but you've got to get a background. We're not going to spend our time in just, just the last part of this, but to understand it. So would you go in, in verse 4 of Daniel 4, and I want to read this through. I, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, was at home in my palace, contented and prosperous. I had a dream that made me afraid. As I was lying in my bed, the images and visions that passed through my mind terrified me. So I commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be brought before me to interpret the dream for me. When the magicians, enchanters, astrologers, and diviners came, I told them the dream, but they could not interpret it. Finally, Daniel came into my presence. Now, Daniel was in captivity from Judah because of the disobedience of the Israelites. And I told him the dream. He is called Belteshazzar after the name of my God and the spirit of the holy gods in me. I said, Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, I know that the spirit of the holy gods, now hold on to that, is in you, and no mystery is too difficult for you. Here is my dream, interpret it for me. These are the visions I saw while lying in my bed. I looked, and there before me stood a tree in the middle of the land. Its height was enormous. The tree grew large and strong, and its top touched the sky. It was visible to the ends of the earth. Its leaves were beautiful, its fruit abundant. And on it was food for all. Under it, the beasts of the field found shelter and the birds of the air lanches. From it, every creature was fed. Kind of a pretty picture here. In the visions I saw while lying in my bed, I looked. And there before me was a messenger, a holy one coming down from heaven. He called in a loud voice, cut down the tree and trim off the branches, strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the animals flee from under it. 
and the birds from under its branches. But let the stump and its root bound with iron and bronze remain in the ground in the grass of the field. Now listen to the next part. Let him be drenched with the dew of heaven and let him live with the animals. Wow. Among the plants of the earth, let his mind be changed from that of a man and let him be given the mind of an animal till seven times, if you want to cross the word times out, I'm reading from the NIV, put years, passed by for him. The decision is announced by the messengers. The holy ones declare the verdict so that the living may know, okay, that the living may know that the most high, do you underline in your Bibles? Hope so. Is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and gives them to anyone he wishes and sets over them the lowest of man. This is the dream that I, King Nebuchadnezzar, had. Now, Belteshazzar, tell me what it means. For none of the wise men in my kingdom can interpret it for me, but you can, because the spirit of the holy gods is in you. He noticed something about him. Then Daniel was greatly perplexed for a time, and his thoughts terrified him. So the king says, Belteshazzar, do not let the dream or its meaning alarm you. Belteshazzar answered, My lord, if only the dream applied to your enemies and its meaning to your adversaries, the, dream, the tree you saw which grew large and strong with its top touching the sky visible to the whole earth with beautiful leaves and abundant fruit, providing food for all, giving shelter to the beasts of the field, and having nesting places in its branches for the birds of the air. You, O king, are that tree. Okay. You have become great and strong. Your greatness has grown until it reaches the sky, and, the, and your dominion extends to the distant parts of the earth. He was the number one ruler in the world. You, O king, saw a messenger, a holy one, coming down from heaven and saying, Cut down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump, bound with iron and bronze in the grass in the field while its roots remain in the ground. Let him be drenched with the dew of heaven. Let him live like the wild animals until seven years pass by for him. This is the interpretation, O king, and this is the decree the Most High has issued against the Lord the King. You will be driven away from your people. You will live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like cattle and be drenched with the dew of heaven. Seven years will pass by you until, underline this again, you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and gives them to anyone he wishes. The command to leave the stump of the tree with its roots means that your kingdom will be restored to you when you acknowledge that heaven rules. Tremendous truth. Therefore, O king, be pleased to accept my advice. Renounce your sins by doing what is right and your wickedness by being kind to the oppressed. It may be then that your prosperity will continue. Now, pause. All this happened, verse 28, to King Nebuchadnezzar. Twelve months later, as the king was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, he said, Is not this the great Babylon I have built as the royal residence by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty? The words were still on his lips. When a voice came from heaven, this is what is decreed for you, King Nebuchadnezzar. Your royal authority has been taken away from you. You will be driven away from people and you will live like wild animals. You will eat grass like cattle. Seven years will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High, here we go again, is the most sovereign over the kingdoms of men and gives them to anyone he wishes. Immediately what has been said about Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. He was driven away from people and ate grass like cattle. His body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair grew like the feathers of an eagle and his nails like the claws 
of a bird. That's a lot of reading, folks, but there's a lot there. And you saw the picture of the dream that he had, Daniel's interpretation of the dream through the ministry of God, and it came to pass. And he said to Daniel, what does it mean? And Daniel said, until you bow down to the most holy and you don't believe you're the highest in all of the world, you then will be cut down. You see what this story tells us. It bears one fact, and that is this. God is God. This should be the first thing that comes into your mind when you think about God. He's God. He's God. He's God. He's not a puppet pulling strings. He's not a weakling. He's not just a big brother. He's not just my friend. He's God. The agnostic Voltaire said Christians believe that man was made from God's image, but man has returned the favor. He's made God in his image. That's a scathing denunciation of you and of me. A God-like man who's just a little bigger and a little better. Nebuchadnezzar had to learn what we have to learn. He's God. Now, what did he realize? Go to verse 34. He realized a number of things. At the end of that time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes towards heaven, and my sanity was restored. After seven years, he was no longer an animal. He was back to normal. Then I praised the Most High. I honored and glorified him who lives forever. I want to give you some characteristics, and if you're taking notes here, here's where we can go. Number one, he learned this. God lives forever. He's eternally existent. Do you understand God always was and God always will be? Because if you understand that, you're better than I am because I live in a finite world and I've never understood that, but I believe that. God always was, God always will be. I don't even understand. I'll live forever. And the sad part of life, I'll live forever and I'll look like this. Sorry. <laughs> it says we'll be known as we are known. So we'll know each other. But he lives forever. Now notice the next. His dominion is an eternal dominion. He has an everlasting dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the peoples of the earth, verse 35, are regarded as nothing. There is nothing that compares to God. He is entirely different from man. And then notice this. He does as he pleases. Out. Keep going. With all the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. He has all the powers of heaven and is over all the peoples of the earth. Do you believe that? Do you know that he's over the election that we had last Tuesday night? He knows what he's doing. 
We got some Trump fans here. Um, <laughs> for Hillary fans, we'll talk later. Um, <laughs> okay. But notice this next one. No one can hold back his hand. No one can stop him. He is irresistible. And then listen to this last statement. Or say to him, what have you done? We can't say to God, God, why did you do this? And we do it all the time. We aren't here to question him. Why? He's God. He's God. And before we put any of the other attributes of God together, we've got to understand he's God. He is the sovereign over the universe. It's the common way of saying he's God, he's sovereign, he's in control. But what does this mean in my second point? You're not going to like this next point, so stay with me. But listen to this. God has the right to do whatever he wishes to do. And I feel the squeeze. Do you like this? Hmm, tough stuff, isn't it? But please take note. What pleases him is your best and my best. Two, God is under no rule or authority outside of himself. Not yours or mine. He has no authority over him. Three, God is under no obligation to you and me. Now, I understand his promises, so piece those together. But he doesn't have to answer to me. He's sovereign. He's in control. Can I bring it more home? Almost 30 years ago, my wife and I went to the mall on a Thursday night. My wife had a disease for which she took medication for 10 years. The next morning I got up, hooked the boat in the back of my car, I was going to visit my brother and his family for a reception for my nephew's wedding. I then drove up to the church and went through my notes. My wife was still sleeping, and I came back, and she said, I don't feel well. I said, you lay down. I have to mow the lawn. I mowed the lawn, came back in. She said, I feel worse. I said, uh, I'm going to quickly take a shower. At noon, she looked at me, and she said, I can't breathe. Called the paramedics. They came in, and, and I watched for the first time in all the years she had this disease, and she was just writhing all over the place, and she got into the, we called the ambulance and they came and I said to her, I'll be about a half an hour behind you. And So I drive down and a girl whom I knew from our bowling league was a nurse there and she followed me and she said, what's going on? And I said, um, Mitzi, that was my wife, um, she, she's just been taken in. And she said, well, I'll go and sit with you. And I, and I walked up to the desk that I'd been to as a pastor many times and I said, my wife Mitzi didn't give me any muck out of my mouth. She said, go into that room. I said, oh boy. I'd been in that room with other families. Doctor walks in, said, right after your wife got here, she had a massive heart attack. She was not breathing for three minutes. We're going to have to talk. Well, I'm not stupid. 
No response here. And I said, we're talking life support. He said, we'll talk later. We got her back breathing. My doctor walks in and we start talking. And 15 minutes later, the doctor walks back in and says she had another heart attack and died. I remember that night having called her folks and my mom, my dad had already passed away. And I remember going to the funeral home after we made all the arrangements. My mother, you'd have to know her deeply into the word of God, loved the Lord. I mean, God has been so good and, and, and I see so many good things. My dad was a pastor and I've pastored for 41 years and now Jordan's pastoring. And See, I saw all these good things, although I didn't know Jordan then. Life was peaceful. And, um, <laughs> sorry, son. <laughs> so, so we, we're standing in the funeral home, and I have to kind of direct this to you. Over here was a doorway where everybody came in, and over 450 people came in. And my mother stood at that door, and they came down here and then down an aisle, and I stood behind. It was the casket. And I could hear my mother because she had a deep, deep voice. We called her Gravel Gertie. And, I, and Mom said, you don't know me, but I'm Ken's mom. And I want you to know something. God is sovereign. That means he's in control, and he knows what he's doing. I heard that 300 times that day. It took me one year to tell Mom, thanks. It sank in. God is sovereign. He's in control. He does know what he's doing. Let me bring it more into our family, and I can only tell family stories. But I have a mother-in-law at the age of 16, maybe a little younger, a lady in the area invited her to church, a Christian Missionary Alliance church. You may know that group. And her mom didn't go, her family didn't go, but she went to church. And she heard the good news that the only way to heaven is by faith in Christ and Christ alone, and she asked Christ to be her Savior. My father-in-law was in a home where his parents, for some reason, and they had money, I didn't understand it. To this day, I don't. But he was the second of two sons, and when they got the second son, they said, we can't handle two children, and gave my father-in-law over to his grandmother to raise him. And his grandmother had remarried a person that knew the Lord Jesus Christ. And my father-in-law heard the good news of Jesus Christ. And my father-in-law accepted Jesus Christ. And those two got married, had three children. The middle one was the best of the three. I had to say that or I'm in deep trouble. And guess what? She heard the good news because sovereignly God placed Virginia, my mother-in-law, at a church where she heard the gospel. Sovereignly God placed Wilbur into a, a home that heard the gospel. They came to know Christ. They took their children to a church in Waterford, Pennsylvania where the kids heard the good news of Jesus Christ and my wife gloriously got saved. Is God not sovereign and in control? You see, he's God. 
Isn't that fantastic? This is all the way through the Bible, and I have so much material. I just want to read a few. Yeah, I'm going to go on. There's so much here. I've got too much. <laughs> but Isaiah chapter 46, let me read the text. Notice these verses. I'll just read them. Remember the former things, those of long ago. I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. I make known the end from the beginning, from ancient times, what is still to come. I say, my purpose will stand and I will do all that I please. God in his pleasure brought those people together to know Christ. And I knew that when my wife died, God in his pleasure, in his plan, took her to be with him. Can I say something to you from my heart? I had no idea what was going to have happen after that. But God sovereignly brought a godly woman into my life with two children. And to see what God sovereignly has done. That I'm standing in a church that I had never heard of because my son pastors it. God does as he pleases. God's brought into his wife a godly woman and two beautiful grandchildren because they don't have my genetic background and they're gorgeous. <laughs> Let me give you how this works quickly. Okay, How is the sovereignty of God demonstrated? One, he is sovereign over inanimate matter. Let there be light. Let me bring a flood. Let me bring darkness over the land in Egypt. Let there be a furnace that's so hot that everybody should die. <laughs> and the three Hebrews didn't. Let there be a star over a manger. And the waters were rough, and he said, Be still. He's sovereign over nature. So that the men said, what manner of man is this? Two, he's sovereign over animals. He caused, called, caused animals to be made and to be named. He brought animals to the ark. He caused different animals and even bad things to come into the land of Egypt. He called a fish to swallow Jonah. He closed the mouths of lions. He put a coin in a mouth, fish of a mouth. Wow. He caused a donkey to submit to him that had never been ridden on. He's thirdly sovereign over angels. Peter's in prison and an angel came and set him free. 1 Samuel 16, the spirit of the Lord came. Job 1 and 2, Satan himself, but he gave him limits. But more important than anything, he's sovereign meaning he's in control over your life and mine. I do ask for your prayers. God has put me sovereignly in a school with kids that are kids. And some of those kids messed up on Friday. And tomorrow I have to confront those kids. I've already planned my speech. I don't know if it'll work. But one of the things I'm going to tell them, you think everything is unfair. That's a teenage statement. And I'm going to tell them, God is sovereign over a man by the name of Joseph 
Joseph was thrown into a pit and eventually went to jail for doing the right thing and he was in prison for 13 years. And he said, God meant it for good. God is sovereign over a man by the name of Saul that was killing Christians and brought him to trust Christ so we could hear 13 books of the Bible. A lady in World War II by the name of Corrie Ten Boom. They said the reason she got out was a clerical error. It was not. It was the sovereignty of God. In the early 1970s, the president of our country violated the law and lost the presidency, and five men went to prison, and one of those men sovereignly was placed in a prison where he could hear the gospel, and his name is Charles Colson, and Charles Colson trusted Christ and wrote a book called Born Again. God is sovereign. He knows what he's doing. He's sovereign in your life. He's sovereign in my life. So let's finish with the practical implications of this truth. Let's look at the last two verses, and We'll wrap up loose ends. At the same time that my sanity was restored, my honor and splendor were returned to me. Now he's back for the glory of my kingdom. Now he told you all the things that he'd learned about God. My advisors and neighbors sought me out, and I was restored to my throne and became even greater than before. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and glorify the king, sovereign king, of heaven. Because everything he does is right and all his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. Four things I see in that text that happened to Nebuchadnezzar. Number one, God humbled an arrogant man. The first thing that happens to you and to me is when we realize how sovereign he is and he's in control, it humbles us. He is in control. When Job learned that lesson... He sat in ashes. When Isaiah learned that lesson in chapter 6, he fell on his face. When John saw God for the first time in Revelation chapter 1, he fell on his face before God. When Paul saw him, he said, I'm a wicked man. You see, God is God, and that humbles us. We are men and women, and in comparison to God, we are nothing in one sense. But if you show me a proud, self-sufficient man, I will tell you somebody that really doesn't believe that God is God. It humbles us. Number two, he praised God. We will praise God. He genuinely was thankful to God, who is the God of the universe. When the car breaks down, when the bills don't seem to be getting paid, when a tragedy happens in our life, and it's happened for some of you this past year, he's still God. And we can praise him. Thirdly, it says in this text, we will honor God. We will reflect who God is. Can I read something to you that you know? Oh, Lord, my God, when I in awesome wonder... Can you fathom the song? And when I think that God, his son, not sparing, in God's almighty plan, sovereign, he looked down. Now, let's get all the attributes in our mind. He was omniscient. He knew that we would sin. He gave us free will. He knew that would happen. But in his sovereign plan, he gave us a savior for our sin. 
So the writer says, and when I think that God his son not sparing, what does it say here? Send him to die. I had to read this better with my glasses off. I scarce can take it in that on the cross my burden gladly bearing he bled and died to take away my sin. And then verse 4 of this hymn. When Christ shall come with shout of acclamation and take me home, what joy shall fill my heart. Now, that may be sooner than we think for some. Jordan's just told his mom, Dad's getting old. Anyway. Then I shall bow. Notice this. Then I shall bow in humble adoration and there proclaim, My God, how great thou art. That's what this characteristic and this one attribute of God's all about. He's sovereign, and we can bow before him, and we'll have genuine humility. We'll have genuine praise, genuine honor. And then it says here, we will glorify him. I finish by way of application. Dear folks, I know that when I gave you that point about God can do whatever he wishes, we feel that squeeze. But what does he wish? God's desire is that not any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. What a tremendous truth. That's his heart. Psalm 84:11. No good thing will he withhold from them that walk uprightly. He's only got our best in mind. So what does he please? Our best. And our best was he gave us a Savior for our sin. And if you haven't trusted in Jesus Christ as your own personal Savior, you need to today because you have an answer to your sin problem that separates you from God. And you have a Savior that bridged that gap and you can trust in him and receive eternal life because that sovereign controlling God, so controlling and planning that he gave you an answer to your sin. But then in Romans 8, 29, he says, I have predetermined what, what does he want from you and me? That we be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. That was his plan. He does as he pleases. <laughs> I want to finish with one verse. It's plastered all over our home in three class. I had a student that graduated from our high school last year. I just went there last January. He's from China, brilliant student. He's now at Purdue University. And he said, Mr. Muck, can I give you my favorite verse? Psalm 46.10. Can we finish with this? Be still. Quit striving. And know that I Heavenly Father, help us to be still and know that you are God. You are the sovereign, caring, comforting, loving God who's filled with goodness. And we can humble ourselves before you. We can honor you. We can praise you. And we can glorify you because of who you are. You're the God of this universe. I thank you for that today. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Community Gospel Church podcast. If you would like to support this ministry financially, simply log on to communitygospelchurch.com and click the Contribute tab. 